Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Paradise podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time, we read about David's capture of Jerusalem and how he turned that city into his capital. This moment was an attempt to politically unify the tribes by choosing a location that had not been claimed by any tribe in Israel up to that point, and a location that was also on the fault line between the tribe of Benjamin, Shaul's stronghold, and the tribe of Yehuda, David's stronghold, and therefore Jerusalem, the new capital, could be seen as an attempt to bring together the tribes of Israel and to unify them. Politically, therefore, David's choice of Jerusalem was absolutely significant. At the same time, there is another dimension to Jerusalem. It's more ancient history. According to Genesis chapter 22, the Akedah, that is the binding of Isaac by Abraham, the supreme test of Abraham's faith in God takes place in an area known as Mount Moriah, Har Hamoriah, which later on in the book of Chronicles is decisively linked to Jerusalem. Put differently, when David makes Jerusalem his capital, it's actually recreating an ancient link with that location, a spiritual link with that location, and that location remained part of the Israelite conscience for hundreds of years after the death of Avraham and Yitzchak until David now reclaims it as his spiritual capital as well. Not enough can ever be said about Jerusalem in the, in the collective memory of the Jewish people. If I were to cut to the chase, I might say, in no small measure, this location in space has had more of an impact on collective Jewish identity than any other single fact. Jews throughout the ages for the last 3,000 years, since David made the city his capital, have always turned to Jerusalem in prayer, have always remembered Jerusalem in their prayers, and have always dreamt of one day repairing the world through the instrument of Jerusalem, the location where humanity and the divine meet. This aspect is especially emphasized in chapter 6 of our book. Now that Jerusalem is David's political capital, now that he has established his kingdom and began the process of unifying the tribes, now that he has crafted alliances with other rulers in the region and defeated the Philistine menace that hung over the tribes of Israel for hundreds of years, David now makes an important move 
and chooses to relocate the Ark of the Covenant to his capital city. Chapter 6 reports, David gathered 30,000 chosen men, and he went to Baalei Yehuda, also known as the city of Kiryat Arim, to take the Ark from there, the Ark of the Lord, and to bring it to Jerusalem. This, of course, recalls earlier events in the first book of Shmuel. Remember how Shmuel Aleph began with the Philistines taking the Ark hostage in battle? Ultimately, they returned that Ark, and it remained in a place called Kiryat Arim, which the Philistines destroyed, had been at Shiloh. That Mishkan was reconstituted after the destruction of Shiloh by the Philistines. The tabernacle of God was reconstituted first at Nov until Shaul destroyed it, and later at Giv'on, as we will learn from the Book of Kings. Basically, all to say, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, with the altar of sacrifice and with its other furniture, was located at this point in Giv'on, but the Ark of the Covenant had been separated from it from the time that that Ark was returned by the Philistines until David now begins the process of bringing together the elements of the house of God. With his plan to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital of Jerusalem, David unleashes a dynamic which will ultimately culminate with the building of the temple and the placement of that Ark in the Holy of Holies. Put differently, we might say, even as the story of Jerusalem is a story of political unification, that is, the tribes of Israel now gathered around a new capital, it is also a story of spiritual unification. As David begins the process of bringing together the elements of God's house, first the Ark of the Covenant, the most important element, and later on the rest of the elements of the Mishkan, that will not happen, of course, until Solomon builds the temple in the first book of Kings, but the process now begins. So as much as Jerusalem represents an aspiration for political unity, it also represents a more profound aspiration for spiritual unity, for unity between God and the people of Israel, God and humanity. And David now brings the ark from Kiryat Arim towards Jerusalem. Of course, it is an incredibly expectant and optimistic moment. Sure enough, the Ark of the Lord is loaded upon a new wagon, which had never been used for anything else, and the oxen begin to draw that wagon even as they are driven by Uzzah and Achyo, the sons of Avinadav, who lead the wagon forward. The wagon begins its journey with the Ark of the Lord upon it. Uzzah is driving. Achyo walks before the Ark. In the meantime, David and all of the people of Israel were joyously celebrating and playing musical instruments. As reported in verse number 5, 
of chapter six, wind instruments and string in instruments and percussion instruments. But something tragically happens. The oxen slip. The ark seems to be falling. Uzzah stretches forth his hand to steady it, but God's wrath was kindled against him and he is struck down on the spot with the Ark of the Covenant. David was extremely distraught. God has made a breach against Uzzah and he called that place the breach of Uzzah until this very day. And David feared God on that day and quickly decided that the ark would not come to Jerusalem. Instead, it detours to the house of Oved Edom of Gat, and there it remains for a period of three months. Of course, the death of Uzzah under these circumstances is extremely troubling. After all, the oxen slipped. Uzzah attempted to steady the ark before it fell, and God struck him down. David himself was disturbed by the events. Therefore, he called that place the breach that God made against Uzzah. How are we to explain it? Interestingly enough, in the parallel passage in the book of Chronicles, chapter 13, and then in chapter 15, when David makes a second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, this time he will ensure that it is not conveyed on a wagon but rather is carried on the sturdy shoulders of the Levites, just as the Torah mandates in Parshat Naso, Ki avodat ha-kodesh alehem, the holy work is upon them, bakatef yisau, they shall convey the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. As some of the commentaries point out, the intention always was that the ark is to be carried like a precious object, like the precious object that it is. It must not, it must not be conveyed on a wagon or any other contrivance, but actually has to be carried on the shoulders of human beings, the Levites who are charged with sanctifying themselves and bringing it to its destination. In fact, we might actually posit that the real blame in the story lies with David. It is his decision to convey the ark or attempt to convey the ark on a wagon. And effectively, Uzzah is the innocent victim of that choice. This actually highlights one of the most important ideas when it comes to kingship or leadership in ancient Israel and in modern Israel, which is to say, the decisions that leaders make will impact on their subjects, whether for the better or for the worse, whether their subjects consciously choose or they do not. So Uzzah becomes the innocent victim, as it were, of David's poor choice to convey the ark on a wagon rather than on the shoulders of the Levites, and there he dies. Naturally, David is deeply distraught by these events. Therefore, when the ark is reconveyed to Jerusalem the second time, after it had remained in the house of Oved Edom for three months, 
the text reports back in our chapter, chapter 6, that God blessed the household of Oved Edom. David takes that as the signal to try again to relocate the ark to Jerusalem. And this time they are successful, as the book of Chronicles pointed out, because this time they do it right without a wagon, but instead with the ark carried as it should be, as befits this holiest symbol of God's presence in the material world, which is what the ark represents. So this time the ark is carried, sacrifices are offered, and the text reports ecstatic dancing on the part of David. He dances ecstatically with all of his strength before God, and he wears a fod bud, a garment usually associated with the priesthood. They brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with the blasts of the shofar, and it arrived in the city of David and was installed in its place in a tent that David had set up in order to receive it. David offers sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings, blesses the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributes to everyone a grab bag, as it were, a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, a raisin cake, call it if you will, the first kiddish in Jewish history, and all of the Israelites go home to their households joyous. The ark is brought safely to the city of David, and it's at this moment from this point onwards that Jerusalem will be not only the political focus in ancient Israel, but the spiritual focus as well. And as I pointed out, naturally, this is just the beginning of a process. The process will be concluded only when the temple is built and the ark is placed in the Holy of Holies, but that will not be David's work as we will see shortly in chapter seven, but rather the work of his son Solomon in the beginning of Sefer Milachim. I'd like to point out a general theme which seems to animate the story here as well as elsewhere in the Tanakh, and that is more often than not, the fortunes of the house of God are a direct mirror image of the fortunes of the people of Israel. So as the people of Israel now move towards some sort of unification, which they have never achieved before, as it were, that is mirrored by the house of God or the furniture associated with the house of God, the elements, the precious vessels associated with the house of God that now begin their own journey of coming together, first with the ark and then with the mishkan, the furniture of the mishkan, which as I said is currently at Giv'on, but one day will be brought together in the temple to be united with the ark of the covenant. Essentially, the process of the people of Israel becoming politically united is mirrored by the house of God undergoing a similar kind of dynamic. And this essentially is the narrative associated with the house of God in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. So therefore, when the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness in the book of Shmot and Vayikra, Bimidbar and Devarim, the house of God in their midst also wandered 
the people of Israel lived an impermanent life in the wilderness, and the house of God was a portable structure. When they arrived in the land, the house of God was set up at Shiloh, and the people of Israel also became more permanent and stable in the land. But that was a process over hundreds of years. Instability happened when the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, and sure enough, not only was the tabernacle destroyed, but its elements were scattered and separated. The house of God was in one location when it was reconstituted, and the Ark of the Covenant in another. And now, as we begin to speak about Israel once again becoming united, perhaps to a greater degree than ever before, that will be mirrored in the fortunes of the house of God. And the first move is the relocation of the ark. Ultimately, the temple will be built and there will be perfect unification of the elements of the house of God to mirror the perfect unification which exists for a short time during the reign of Solomon. Eventually, the temple will be destroyed and the people of Israel will be driven into exile. Once again, the house of God, a mirror image of the fate of the people of Israel in whose midst it dwells. It is no wonder that in our tradition, the messianic vision of restoration of the people of Israel being brought together, of them being reunified, must therefore be accompanied by a parallel vision of the temple being rebuilt in their midst because the house of God is nothing more or less than the barometer of the people of Israel in whose midst it dwells. The chapter concludes with a sharp exchange between Michal, who is here referred to as Michal Bat Shaul, the daughter of Shaul, who peers through the window, sees the king, King David, dancing ecstatically before God, and in her heart she feels scorn for him, and eventually she will address him, and she will say sarcastically, how honorable is the day when the king of Israel exposes himself before his maidservants like one of the lowly people. As if to say, a king has to have nobility. A king has to have self-respect. A king has to behave in a kingly fashion. For David to be ecstatically dancing before his subjects like one of them is actually a compromise of his nobility and a compromise of his office. And this, of course, Michal says, hailing from the house of Shaul, where Shaul had been that kind of a king. But David offers the following retort in verse number 21. David says to Michal, before God who chose me instead of your father and all of his household and made me the ruler over the people of God, I will behave joyously before God. And even if I am debased in my own eyes and with those maidservants of whom you speak, I will be honored. What David effectively wants to say is, the king of Israel might be the most noble an honored position in the nation, but before God, who is absolute, it is nothing. And therefore, 
David would rather dance before God and show his devotion ecstatically, even as that appears to compromise his office, because before God there is no such thing as glory or honor, but only humility. And so effectively, David says, the way of your father Shaul was a different way, less populous than I am, says David. But as part of the people of Israel dancing before God, this is entirely appropriate behavior. And so the exchange concludes with the report that Michal, the daughter of Shaul, had no offspring, presumably from David, until the day of her death. Hard to interpret what that means. Does that mean that David had no relations with her? Does that mean that she was not fertile? Not clear exactly who is the cause of this outcome that Michal has no child with David, but obviously, once again, it plays in to the larger design. Had Michal had a child with David, it would have been a child in line to succession, but also a child hailing from the house of Shaul, which could have complicated things immeasurably down the line. So once again, David is assisted by some sort of intervention that actually moves the story in a positive direction insofar as he is concerned. But tragically, of course, this rift between Michal and between David will not be healed. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.